Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to one of the authors of Legacies of Losing in American Politics. The book is published by University of Chicago Press this year, and uh, the, the, uh, one of the authors is here to talk to me today, Nicole Mello. Nicole, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for asking, and thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe you can tell us just a little bit about yourself and also your co-author. Sure. So I teach political science at Williams College. Uh, in Massachusetts, I study American political development. My first book uh, was on the regional sources of modern American partisanship, and I'm now at work uh, following uh, the Legacies book on uh, early 20th century American eugenics and nation and state building. Um, I wrote Legacies with Jeff Toulis, who's a faculty member in the government department at the University of Texas. He's a scholar of American politics, political theory, and constitutional law, um, and he's perhaps most well-known for his uh, book, The Rhetorical Presidency. Yeah, it's um, such an interesting book, so glad to have you on. Uh, when I got the book, before I read it, I, I had imagined this as kind of an alt history of American politics, <laughs> where you played out all sorts of <laughs> alternative endings. This is not what the book is about. The book is about all that we can lose from lo- learn from losing. Excuse me. In in doing so, I wonder if you can talk about one of the the, um, topics at the beginning, which is what an anti-moment is. An anti-moment, yes. Uh, I wonder if you can just briefly talk about that idea and why it matters. Absolutely. Um, I I, I will uh, have one comment, though, on the idea of losing. It is a Uh, we hope, a provocative title, and it's one that we had a lot of fun with over the years because, of course, it's always fun to say, what are you studying? We study losers. We we got a lot of humor out of that, which sustained us across the the many years of the project. Um, But anti-moments are what we use, a term we use to describe um, what we're really interested in, which is thinking about these moments of um, large-scale change in American politics, what um, what a, a pretty prominent group of scholars has described as constitutional moments or regime change moments. There are moments, for example, like the founding or um, uh, reconstruction after the Civil War or the New Deal moments in American political history when something pretty transformative happened and, and um, what occurred, what became normal politics after that moment was significantly different what, from what had come before. So that's sort of an established way of thinking about it, and it's disputed, and people will 
talk about which moments are the most significant, but these three, founding, uh, reconstruction, and New Deal, are generally agreed upon as being pretty significant moments of constitutional change. So our study is of what we call the anti-moments. And so the anti-moments are represented by the losers in those significant battles, in the, in the, in the constitutional moments, the, the group or the actor that, that, that lost the battle to, to fight the change um, is, represents the anti-moment. And we describe these anti-moments as being uh, pretty powerfully uh, inflected on American political history in ways that we haven't noticed because we don't really pay attention to losers. So in a nutshell, that, and I can talk more about that, but, but the anti-moments are, are an account of the losses uh, that accompanied these big moments of transformative change and the ways that these losses were actually ultimately quite profoundly successful in their own right. Maybe you can just describe these, um, these three a little bit more um, in, in um, uh, the, the particular part of each three of these anti-moments that you, f- you focus on. Sure. So the first moment that we focus on, uh, the biggest moment, is, is the founding um, and the, the battle to ratify the Constitution. So here, of course, the Federalists were successful in, in achieving ratification of the Constitution and launching the nation. Um, and the Anti-Federalists were the losers, uh, and that's unequivocal. They, they failed their, in their principal aim, which was to defeat ratification of the Constitution. Um, but what we try to argue in this case is that the Anti-Federalists were actually powerfully successful in the long run in ways that are, are unanticipated and, and often unseen or un, unrecognized. Um, and so I can go about describing, maybe I'll briefly describe the three moments and then I can go into yeah, detail about how, how we argue that they were successful. Um, but in short, it's that the anti-federalist uh, helped to, well, let, let me leave that one and I'll describe the other two just so you get the bigger picture. The yeah. second moment is, is um, in the aftermath of civil war uh, with the project of uh, reconstruction. And here we focus on Andrew Johnson, uh, who succeeded uh, Lincoln after Lincoln's assassination. And um, he, you know, is widely uh, acknowledged to be one of our most disgraced and worst presidents in American political history. He was chased out of office, practically impeached. Um, his vetoes were overridden. He was he was a pretty pretty profound loser uh, in the moment. And what we argue here is that, in fact, the ways that he um, led the office and the ways that he prosecuted his presidency helped in the long run for him to accomplish his aim, which was to restore the South, the white South, um, to the nation on its own terms, on, on uh, terms that were far more lenient than what radical re- Republicans in Congress uh, preferred and, and, and hoped to instruct through Reconstruction. Um, and, and so the evidence of his legacy is, is still with us today, but certainly um, the establishment of Jim Crow and the, the sort of 100-year reign of Jim Crow, uh, we connect to the ways that he led his presidency. So that's the second anti-moment. And then the third anti-moment uh, is the one that accompanies the New Deal, the resurrection, the, the uh, introduction of the New Deal order. And, and here we focus on Barry Goldwater and his 1964 defeat when running for the presidency. Um, he lost in a landslide to Lyndon Johnson. Um, and his was the first really uh, sort of popular display of a, uh, a sharp challenge to the premises of the New Deal order. Um, his and, and for that, he was, among other reasons, he was roundly uh, uh, criticized and lost. And there was much concern um, among among the Republican Party uh, as well as among conservatives that he had lost for them uh, the conservative cause. Um, but of course, as we know, 
modern conservatism was 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 resurrected and became triumphant uh, a mere sixteen years later with with Ronald Reagan and and you know arguably up to the present. So so there we really look at how he lost and the and the features of his candidacy that led to his defeat that we argue also facilitated the rapid resurrection of his of his vision or or, or of large attributes of his vision. Yeah, maybe we can start with the first example. And um, this is a, a well-told time period. Uh, and what I found most interesting is the way that you, you connected this uh, to um, some more current events. Um, part of the argument you make in the book is, is that the anti-federalists uh, used uh, some of the same uh, rhetoric that Federalists used in defending the Constitution to make a very different argument. Uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that dimension uh, of, of that chapter. Yeah. So so with the Anti-Federalist chapter or that case study, what we argue is that, um, that, that both Federalists and Anti-Federalists really understood what the Constitution, what the proposed Constitution was about. They were in agreement on um, what was going to be um, incited or invoked uh, by ratification, that it would be not just um, a transformation uh, that would put a lot more uh, political power in, in or power in the national government uh, over states, but that, w- that it was also a blueprint for a, a more commercial economy, um, for the sort of a, a change in the um, the social practices that would attend that, the rise of an urban commercial uh, society, all of these things were were um, sort of uh, going to be brought forth by if, if this constitution was ratified. The Federalists thought this was a good thing uh, as a way to um, to proceed and to protect uh, to protect liberties. The Anti-Federalists, of course, thought this was a terrible idea, um, and so they they fought it in that political moment um, because the Anti-Federalists made a very persuasive case that this was a radical and new departure from what was then known and understood. Uh, the Federalists had to come had to respond. Uh, strategically. And so, so our argument is that it, in the Federalist Papers, the Federalists first respond with sort of mollifying rhetoric, saying, no, 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 we're not, we're not, this isn't a radical new departure. In fact, um, these things, it's, we're not, we're not nationalists, we're not aiming for national power. There are still these very important uh, Federalist elements of, of state power and, and, and national power, for example, um, uh, maintained in this new constitution. So they, there was a the Federalists were incited to strategically to sort of downplay some of the significance of the changes they were proposing. Uh, but then later in the Federalist Papers, we show how they they sort of they they subtly actually defend the very features that they've just said that they were not promoting. So, for example, on on federalism, they later make it clear that. Um, national government will actually have pretty large discretion to decide which policies are going to be maintained at the state level. Um, or, for example, uh, Hamilton famously uh, talks about the ways that, well, you know, on the one hand, people will be very loyal to their local and state government because of their familiarity with it. Uh, and then he later goes on to say, essentially, but the national government is going to be better administered, and that will that will uh, draw people's loyalty to it, especially as it becomes more present in the daily lives of citizens. Something that they had earlier said would not uh, really um, be something to fear. So, because of this way of this this rhetorical uh, shift, because of this way of arguing uh, that the Federalists 
um, um, undertake. Uh, on the one hand, they were successful. They, they succeeded in ratifying the Constitution or getting the Constitution ratified. On the other hand, the Anti-Federalists in the aftermath of ratification could go back and appropriate that early mollifying, downplaying rhetoric that is in the now authoritative Federalist Papers to reinterpret what the constitutional project was really about, um, something that they had both agreed on uh, at the outset, as I, as I suggested. So, so what we claim here is that, that the Anti-Federalists and, and the heirs to their ideological um, uh, disposition returned to the Federalist Papers and used that authoritative source to then make claims about the Constitution as a charter for very limited government, one that that, um, made states' rights uh, sort of prime. Um, And and this is something that we suggest is not really well recognized um, by by both progressives and conservatives uh, since that time, that they they, they executed this turn so well um, that we've, we've We've miscredited uh, the claim for limited government to be a federalist project when really it was the anti-federalist project. The the chapter on Andrew Johnson, uh, as as you point out earlier, uh, what most people um, associate with a uh, truly failed presidency, but you argue that it's the the successes uh, of his presidency that are most connected with his legacy, even if. Uh, uh, sort of um, symbolically, we understand the, the failure. What were some of those um, successes that that led to uh, and set the really set the table for uh, Jim Crow and um, all that came next? Yeah, Andrew Johnson's a <clears throat> a fascinating case, and it's actually the case that we started with um, on this project. What we look at with Johnson's presidency is the way that he conducted his presidency. So he comes to office as a Southern Democrat, um, loyal to the Union, which is why, which is which is a big reason why Lincoln um, had taken him on as vice president. Um, and he's generally um, conceived of as ill-advised, wrong-headed, incompetent. There were lots of opportunities for him to work with. Uh, Republicans in Congress to uh, restore the Union um, in the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, And instead, at every turn, he pursued aims that were uh, the opposite of what their aims were. And so this, of course, uh, led to uh, their attempts ultimately to impeach him um, and to chasing him from office. Um, but if you think about it, uh, not as an ambition for political survival uh, or uh, from the normative view as leadership committed to the liberal goals of p- liberal uh, liberty and political equality, but rather as the agenda that he was hoping to prosecute, which was a restoration of the South on its terms, not the North's terms, then then in that sense, he was really successful. So so how did he achieve that? Or how did he set the stage for that? How did he facilitate that? Because we don't, we very clearly don't make the case that it was all his doing. Um, but we do argue that he played a very important role uh, by occupying the White House, especially in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. So the first thing that he did was to, to engage in a lot of preemptive executive action. Um, and, and these included efforts to get the southern states back into, into government, back uh, being seated in Congress uh, very quickly. He had a, his plan for restoring the South um, was much more lenient toward white and former Confederate um, uh, leaders than, than Republicans in Congress, radical Republicans uh were interested in. Um, he wanted the the states, the southern states, to very quickly put together new governments, 
where all they had to do was essentially repudiate slavery and secession, and then they could be seated back in Congress. And he did all of this without reconvening Congress, which he could have. The military hostilities were over. He really could have um, called Congress back to come up with a joint plan, and instead he acted on his own. Um, and so that, so, so that we argue is a sort of a strategy of executive preemption, trying to, to get his will established before Congress could act. Once Congress did uh, reconvene, they were not pleased with what he was what he was attempting, and so they passed a whole series of acts: um, the Freedmen's Bureau bill, uh, bill, Military Reconstruction Acts, Civil Rights Act, uh, ultimately the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendment. Um, and many of these were these were all passed over his vetoes, um, and he not only vetoed them, but he went and he stumped against them, and he spoke very forcefully against um, the uh, unconstitutionality of these acts um, about uh, the ways that the North uh, Northern Radical Republicans were now the traitors, no longer the South. So he was very um, clear in his signals to the South that he was on um, their side. And so, so th- they, they mustered uh, the necessary votes to override his vetoes. And once that happened, he, um, through his executive actions, tried to slow or impede the implementation of these acts. So, for example, he encouraged states, uh, the southern states, not to ratify the 14th Amendment. Um, he, uh, the South was under military rule, uh, and he replaced the commanders that the Congress approved of with more lenient um, commanders, the ones that were more sympathetic to his aims and ambitions. And so with each of these acts, it, it forced Congress to become ever more t- um, stringent in their legislative direction. Um, and, and what we argue is that not only did this slow and delay and give the South time to, to regroup, um, it also uh, made a war-weary Northern voting audience tired of the um, of the effort it was taking to bring the South to heal in ways that many prominent Northerners were arguing, North won the war, we should really be able to dictate the conditions upon which we proceed. So, so preemption and obstruction are two ways uh, that Johnson, in his, his time as president, helped to uh, create the ground for the South to return to um, the National uh, Political Project Union on its own terms. And the last, and this is this one picks up on, uh, especially on the themes from the earlier chapter on the Anti-Federalists, was through um, the process of ide- what we call ideological revision. And so here we argue that Johnson used the bully pulpit of the presidency to really cast the North now as acting unconstitutionally in what they were um, demanding of the South and to claim for the South now the sort of righteous uh, constitutional actors uh, role and to suggest that um, through a sort of anti-federalist reading of the Constitution that the the South was entitled to uh, conduct its um, own affairs uh, according to the way that the states wanted to when it came to racial order management or uh, class relations, these sorts of things. And so he claimed for them a constitutional propriety um, using some of the rhetorical tools bequeathed to him by that earlier anti-federalist tradition. The the final case is Barry Goldwater. Um, Barry Goldwater, someone who is always held up as as a symbol, a symbol of conservatism, a a symbol of a time period. But you're right, and I thought this was very interesting, um, that he's remarkably important for what he did and said, not just for what he symbolized. 
What do you mean by that? What what did he do and say that is as significant as the his symbolic importance uh, for cons- the conservative movement? Yeah, the Goldwater case is an interesting one because it's one that I think most readers would be pretty familiar with, or it's a more contemporary case, and his loss was certainly <clears throat> well known. Um, but people tend to refer to Goldwater as a sort of a man before his time, right? He he, um, you know. He, he championed conservatism when the time just wasn't ripe. But what we try to suggest in this case is that the how he did that helped to ripen the moment, if you will. Um, so one of the things that he did was that he introduced voters to this this a, a genuine conservative critique of the New Deal at a time when Republicans were not doing that. More mainstream Republicans who were... Um, candidates uh, of the era, whether it was Nixon or, or Nelson Rockefeller, were, were moderate. And they were more, they, he would castigate them as being sort of New Deal light or too, too sympathetic to the aims and, and the precepts of the New Deal uh, democratic vision. And so he offered voters a very sharp critique and, and a sort of coherent uh, public philosophy alternative um, and so this is important, uh, we suggest, because on the one hand, it, um, it it begins to lay the groundwork for popular acceptance of some of those ideas. Um, and it also provides a new lens through which voters can then subsequently uh, examine the New Deal philosophy and, and the sort of... Um, some of the difficulties or shortcomings of its of its ambitions or or its policy aims. So that's one thing that he he presented a sort of, uh, and he made that primary over his own candidacy. He made his ideas a sort of centerpiece of his campaign. Um, so that was one important uh, feature of his candidacy. A second a second feature was that he he was he was reluctant to 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 campaign for the presidency. He was, he, and his reluctance uh, compelled a, a very um, significant grassroots uh, organizational movement. Um, they had to draft Goldwater, as the saying, as the saying goes. Um, and this allowed for the building of a, of a really um, successful uh, infrastructure that outlasted him, right? Because they had to convince him to run, that there was support for his ideas uh, the organizational infrastructure that was built up to to draft him um, then was in place and outlasted his his failed uh, run. So a third thing that we suggest that he did uh, as part of his campaign was that um, he displayed the principles and the rhetoric that that um, were necessary uh, to unite the South and the West. And in doing so, um, he provided electoral strategies to subsequent Republican leaders. So someone like Nixon, we think of as, um, you know, really coming up with the Southern strategy. Um, but, he, but Nixon, who had in 1960 uh, campaigned as a moderate, um, now in 1968, in the aftermath of, of Goldwater, sh- uh, turned more sharply toward uh, conservative themes and to, to ideas uh, that he um, took from Nixon as, as being successful in the South and the West in a way to unite this new emerging Republican bloc. Um, so that was the third uh, feature of, of his campaign. And the, and the fourth one uh, had to do with his personality uh, and the fact that he refused to conduct himself like a typical politician, right? He refused to moderate his views. He refused to even highlight some uh, admirable attributes of his personality um, and his history. He, he wanted them to be subsidiary to his, his ideas and conservative ideas. And so 
what we suggest there is that because he refused to do that, because he um, refused to moderate himself in any way, it really kept his idea, his conservative ideas and the lessons of his uh, campaign intact for subsequent Republican leaders to to model themselves after. Yeah, but go, go ahead. Uh, no, so I, I, I guess what we suggest is that because each of these were, were conscious choices on his part, uh, they made him more of an actor in... Um, on the one hand, uh, his loss, uh, he, his his refusal to moderate to Vladhan to be a politician ensured his loss um, and ensured his loss on a massive scale. On the other hand, those very features we suggest also helped to um, to lay the groundwork for the success of conservatism sixteen years later. Yeah, the, the book again is um, Legacies of Losing in American Politics. Uh, University of Chicago Press, the the authors, Nicole Mello, and her co-author, Jeffrey Tellis. Thank you very much, Nicole. Thanks very much for having me. 